you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I do want to issue a, a welcome to the families from Redeemer. We are thrilled that you're with us this morning. Um, we're glad to be able to worship the King alongside you and you alongside us this morning. And we want to remain in a spirit of worship as we turn now to His Word. We've been walking through a study of the book of Genesis uh, for a while now. And now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 17. The events of chapter 17 occur about 13 years after the events of chapter 16 that we looked at last week with Abram and Sarai and Hagar. Chapter 16 ended with the birth of Ishmael, who was the offspring of Abram and Sarah's maidservant, the Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. As we saw Abram and Sarai bow to the cultural and societal norms of that day and took matters into their own hands and acted out of a, 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 out of a lack of faith, out of a lack of trust in God and God's perfect timing to bring them a child. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and Sarah gives her handservant, her maidservant to um, Hagar, to Abram, and um, she gets pregnant and they have the child Ishmael. At that point, at the end of that chapter, Abram was 86 years old and Sarai, his wife, was 76 years old. Now it's 13 years later. Fast forward 13 years, Abram is now 99, his wife is 89, so just think about that. 13 more years of Abram under the false impression, most likely, that Ishmael is the child of promise, that he now has an offspring. 13 more years of childlessness for Sarai. Chapter 17 is unique among all the chapters that we've covered to this point in the book of Genesis, and really it's distinct among all of the chapters in the book of Genesis in that it is almost exclusively a divine speech from God. The, the, the entire chapter almost is, is God speaking to Abraham. There's very little human action here and even less human dialogue. God is both the primary actor and the primary speaker in almost all of this chapter. And that's going to set this chapter apart from every chapter from here on out. And, and in fact, through the remainder of the book of Genesis, we're going to see these long speeches, these long divine speeches from Yahweh less and less. So this is very distinct in that respect. Chapter 17 is clearly about the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and we've seen this all the way since we went back into Genesis in chapter 12. In chapter 12, God makes his promises to Abraham, calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to a land that I will show you, and he gives him promises. And his promises are threefold. First of all, I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to give you a, a son, a child. Secondly, I'm, I'm promising you land. I'm going to give you land. And then thirdly, it's the promise of blessing that will project to all nations, to all the earth. It started in chapter 12, and then it's been, been reiterated a number of times. We saw it again in chapter 13 as, as um, God reiterates these promises and says, Your descendants, Abram, will be as the dust of the earth. If you can count the dust of the earth, you will be able to count your offspring. Abram, I'm going to give you all the land that you see in front of you after he and Lot split ways and Abram settles in the land of Canaan. God says, this is it. This is the land. All that you see to the north, the south, the east, and west, it's all going to be yours. This is part of my promise to you. And then, of course, we had the cutting of the covenant in chapter 15 as, as God tells Abram to... to Take these animals and to cut them in half and to lay them in two rows. And, and God makes his promises to Abraham. And, and he, he says, now count the stars. Go out at night. Look to the heavens. If you can count the stars, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to give you all these offspring. And I'm going to give you this land. And then, and then God 
through, symbolized through the, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. God passes through the pieces of the animals, covenanting himself with Abraham, pronouncing a curse on himself, saying in essence, Abraham, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not keep my promises to you. So this covenant has been reiterated a number of times, but now in chapter 17, this covenant is ratified and God gives to Abraham a sign of the covenant and that sign of the covenant is circumcision. So if you're visiting with us here today, if you're from Redeemer, if you're wondering if we are committed to expository preaching and just walking through Scripture, this morning should be a very real evidence for you because I didn't choose this text for this morning. God chose it for us. So we're going to talk about circumcision this morning because God's Word talks about circumcision. So let's read the account of God meeting with with Abram and speaking with Abram. And what I want to do is I want to read, um, there's four four sections in this chapter, the two of which we're going to cover this morning about halfway through. The first section in verses verses 1 through 8 is when God appears to Abraham, he, he commands Abraham to be blameless, and then he reiterates these promises. In the second section, he gives Abraham the command to circumcise all the males in your, in your household and, the, and talks about it as the sign of the covenant. The third section we'll cover next week is where, is where God says, hey, Ishmael's not the child of promise. There's another one that's coming. The, the one that's going to come through your wife, Sarah. Not, not the one that, that was a byproduct of what you were trying to do, but this is going to be the child of promise. This is going to be the, the one who was from the, the seed of promise, tracing it back to Genesis 3.16. We don't have, to, don't have to go, time to go back there, but he's going to trace it back through that and say, this is the child of promise, and his name shall be Isaac. And then we'll see the, um, Abram's obedience to the command of circumcision Um, in the last section. So what I want to read this morning is verses 1 through 14, and then skip that middle section and read Abram's obedience at the end of the chapter. So follow along as I read Genesis chapter 17. This is the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from from any foreigner who is not from your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then skip down to verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. Thank you, Father, that we can know this to be your very breath. God, we ask now that you would speak to us from your word. And God, I admit to you that I bring only the potential to get in your way. And so I pray that that would not be the case. We ask that you would speak from your word. Anything that I say this morning, Lord, that is, that is not grounded in your word, may it fall on deaf ears. Anything that is not in accord with the right understanding of your word, may it fall on deaf ears. But Lord, that, that which is in accord with your word, may it go down between joint and marrow and divide our soul and make us more like Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would not just give us understanding about this text, but Lord, that you would bring application to our lives. That we might, by your grace, individually and corporately, look more like Jesus as a result of this word. And so that's what we ask of you, Lord. Pray for every person within the sound of my voice, Lord, that you would give them ears to hear. And Lord, that your spirit would give us both understanding and application to our lives. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first eight verses form the first section. The first section is God appears to Abraham, commands him to be blameless, and then reiterates these promises to him. So the first part of that is that he appears to Abraham. He shows up. We see that in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. So this is, like we've talked about before, this is a theophany. This, this is, a, in some way, a physical manifestation of God. God somehow appears to Abraham. And then he speaks with Abraham. In chapter 17, really, this is one long theophany. God appears to him, and then he speaks to him. Which really begs the question, why doesn't God do that today? Right? Why, why doesn't God appear to us and speak to us in the way, in the manner in which he did with the Old, Test Old Testament saints. And sometimes we wonder that with a tinge of jealousy, don't we? It's like, well, why didn't he show up to us like that? Like, why don't, why don't we get the opportunity to, like, to, to see God in that way and, and have him like, really speak to us? Why doesn't God appear to us? And when we ask that, we need to be reminded that he has. He has appeared to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God has enfleshed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. He has made himself known to us. He has walked among us. The writer of Hebrews says in the first four verses of that book, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in this church A's, in, 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 the, in the days between the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the, uh, and, and the resurrection of Jesus and his return, in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. So if you look at Jesus as recorded on the pages of scripture, you're seeing God. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing God in flesh. And so um, he goes on to say, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So God has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in the logos of God, the, the word of God. 
So let us not look with jealousy at the Old Testament saints who saw God in these ways and God spoke to them. In reality, it is the other way around. They look at jealousy with, at, at us. They look with jealousy at us and, and, and at least in our earthly experience in this world because while, while, while they in some way saw a, a, a temporary appearance of God, we have seen the incarnate Christ. And we have beheld on the pages of Scripture the resurrected Christ. And together, we await the return of Christ. And so all these theophanies, as we'll see them in Genesis, all of them point to the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But for Abraham, in some manner here, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord physically manifested himself to him. And what did the Lord say to him? says in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So God names himself here. I am God Almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. El meaning God, Shaddai meaning all-powerful or almighty. In chapter 14, the king priest Melchizedek referred to Yahweh as El Elyon. God Most High. In the last chapter, in chapter 16, Hagar, the Egyptian servant, referred to Yahweh as El Roy, the God who sees. And here, God refers to himself as El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is almighty. And it is good to be reminded of that, is it not? It is good to be reminded that God is all-powerful. It is good to be reminded of that. And apparently, God believed that Abram needed to, be, needed to be reminded of that at this particular point. It had been 13 years. Now, we're not told in Scripture explicitly that, that there was no communication between God and Abram, but there's nothing recorded that there was any communication between God and Abraham in those ensuing 13 years. And, and he didn't have this. He didn't have the word of God. All all he had was the last appearance and the last uh, speech that God gave him back in chapter 15 in the cutting of of the covenant. And and so as he reappears to him, as as he shows up, God says, I am God Almighty. I am God the All Powerful. I can do anything, which is what Abram needed to hear and believe and trust in. And then he tells them, in light of the fact that he is all-powerful, he tells Abram two things. Walk before me and be blameless. So this covenant that God has made with Abram, and he's affirming and ratifying in this passage, includes some obligations for Abram and his descendants and his offspring. Two of them are recorded in this first verse, and then a third we will see later in the passage. But the first obligation for Abram and his descendants in this covenant is walk before me. To walk before me, literally to walk before the face of God. The Latin is corum Deo, to to walk before God. Walk in front of me. Now what does that mean? Well, God commanded Solomon to walk before him, just as his father David had walked before him. Listen to 1 Kings 9, verses 4 and 5. God says to Solomon, and as for you... If you will walk before me as David your father walked, and then he describes what that walk was like, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. That is, live your life in such a way that you are aware that you're living it in front of me that you're walking, that you're living your life before me, within my view. This means that we walk and live, not for us, not for man, but for God. That we live and we walk for his glory, not for our glory, not for man's glory, but for God's. And just as it meant for Solomon to, to, to walk with integrity of heart, he said, and uprightness, doing according to all that God has commanded you, and keeping his statutes and rules, so it meant the same thing 
for Abram to live in that way, to walk in that way. Abram, you are to walk in, in your life knowing that you're walking that life in front of me, that I'm seeing every step you take, every breath you make, every single one. Um, talk about accountability, right? Guys, we're, we're away this weekend, and one of the things that we talked about is the importance of accountability, that we as brothers or sisters, we hold one another accountable, and that that is good, and that's healthy, and that's necessary. But imagine this accountability. Not, not, not just walking and living in such a way that I'm going to have to give an answer to my brother, but walking in such a way that we're constantly aware that we're walking before the face of God, that we're living before the face of God. What is your reaction to that? That, 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 is, that is both encouraging because we never escape his notice, right? We, we never take a step outside of the, the purview of, of God's notice and God's sovereignty, but it's also deeply accountable, right? That, that I'm living before the face of God, and he sees everything I do, everything I think, everything I say, even in private. So he's told to walk before God in this way. The second obligation he gives to Abram is to be blameless. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Now that word literally means perfect. It it means without blemish. When describing Noah in Genesis chapter 6, Moses described Noah this way. He says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So again, even there, we saw this correlation between walking with God, walking before God's face, and being blameless, being without blemish. And the same idea of walking before God and being blameless. Similarly, when the Lord was instituting the Passover in Egypt before they escaped, um, he was instituting the Passover and he told Moses, the lamb that you are... Sh- to use, he told them, he told them in Exodus 12, 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Same word there. It, it, it shall be blameless. It shall be without blemish. So in, in the covenant that God made with Abraham, there was an obligation for Abram and his descendants after him. Namely, that they would walk before God and be blameless, to be perfect, to be without blemish. Now, about 600 years later, God would codify what it means to walk with God. And he codifies that after they escape from Egypt and God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. And the law stipulates how we are to walk before God, how the children of Israel are to to walk before him. It It gave them a picture of what it looked like to be blameless. And if they followed the law perfectly, then they would be blameless. They would be without blemish. And if they didn't, if they didn't follow the law, then they would be covenant breakers. And of course, this should remind us that none of them and none of us have ever and could ever perfectly keep the law. There's only only one who did. And that is our Passover lamb, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law. And it is that blamelessness, that righteousness, that perfection of Jesus that gets credited to our account by faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute. It it is that that blamelessness of him, that he is without blemish, so that that by faith in Christ alone, we are justified. We are are made righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of an alien righteousness given to us by faith in Christ. And so that that blamelessness, that, that essence of being without blemish, that only Christ has achieved by fulfilling and obeying the law perfectly is given to us, is credited to our account by faith. But for now, at this point, with Abram, this is the covenant that God makes with him and his descendants. And Abram's obligation and that of his descendants 
is, at least at this point, to walk before the face of God and to be blameless. And then God says in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, the grammar here, that I may make you and that I may multiply you, the grammar here suggests that God's covenant with Abram and his descendants is conditional. That's what it sounds like, right? Sounds like it's conditional. That it's conditioned on Abram's obedience to walk before God and to be blameless. Abram, you walk before me in being blameless, and I will keep my covenant promises. That's what it sounds like. It sounds and seems conditional. It seems bilateral. Right? A, bi- a bilateral covenant is when you have two parties that agree to do their part, and if one of them doesn't do their part, well, then the covenant is null and void. It's abrogated. That's what it sounds like there, right? But we can't use the word conditional for the Abrahamic covenant for a couple of reasons. Number one, we go back to Genesis chapter 15, and we see that incredible vision that God gave to Abraham. The 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 Animals were cut in half. They were laid over against one another. They were put in two rows. And according to the covenant treaty, somebody had to walk through there. Who walked through there? It wasn't Abram. It wasn't Abram. It was God. The smoking fire pot, the the flaming torch was symbolic of the presence of God. It was God who was making the promise. It was, a, it was, in that sense, it was unconditional. It was unilateral. God was saying, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I don't keep my promises to you. And nothing was required of Abraham. So it was unconditional. It was, it was unilateral. The second reason why we can't use the word conditional for the Abrahamic covenant is because the connotation of that word conditional. When we say something is conditional, we kind of mean it's like it's, it's kind of unsure, right? It, it might not happen. Why? Because it's, it's conditioned on this thing, and this thing might not happen, and this thing doesn't happen, then it's all not going to happen, right? And we have to be careful here because it seems like there's a conditional statement here in verse 2 that, that, that if you walk before me and you be blameless, then I may make my covenant with you. But I would suggest to you that a covenant can be both conditional in that sense and 100% sure only if the God who is over that covenant, administering that covenant, is sovereign and all-powerful and almighty. And he is. God, God later would say to the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 verse 27. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in Ezekiel's day, God says to them, You will walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules. And how do we know that they will do that? How do we know that they will live that way? Because God says, I will cause them to. I I will cause them to so act. And the same is true here for these obligations for Abram in this covenant. God makes these unilateral promises, these unconditional promises here to Abram and then gives Abram these obligations in chapter 17 these obligations that he needs to do walk before me be blameless and later be circumcised so there's these obligations that he needs to fulfill and his descendants need to fill and he assigns to those obligations what at least seems to be conditional weight well because God is sovereign and omnipotent he can ensure us that Abram will, in fact, walk before him and be blameless. It's not a maybe. It's not an if with this covenant. It is a sure thing, 100% sure. You can count on it. So we can't go so far as to say that this covenant is conditional, but we can say that although it is unconditional and unilateral, there are still obligations on the part of Abraham and his descendants in this covenant, things that they must do, things that they must obey, namely to walk before him and to be blameless. So 
God appears to Abraham. He calls him to be blameless. The last part of this first section is that he now reiterates the covenant promises. We saw a part of that in verse 2. I will make my covenant with you. I will multiply you greatly. But then in verses 4 through 8, he expands those covenant promises and includes some things that we haven't seen up to this point. But before we get there, we see that the mere mention in verse 2 of God multiplying him greatly In response to that, this causes Abram to worship. Verse 3 says, Then Abram fell on his face. And this is not him tripping and falling down. This is worship. This is Abram falling prostrate before the God of the universe at the mention, at his appearance, and speaking to him in this theophany and making this promise I will multiply you greatly. I will make my covenant between me and you. Abram here is in awe of God. He is, in, he is awash in the overwhelming sense of awe before God. And we would too if this happened to us, right? God showed up to us and he spoke to us. But church, we should remember that this is what happens every time we gather as the church. We're reminded that God has appeared to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he has appeared to us and he has spoken to us in his word. And, and, we're, and we're about to open his word. And church, he's about to speak to us. Let, let, let's don't sell that short. We should have the same response that Abram does. We should fall on our face, figuratively if not literally. We should fall on our face, awash in the overwhelming, an overwhelming sense of awe before God. Because he's speaking to us. He's showing up to us. So then... In verses 4 through 8, God reiterates his covenant promises. Now, why does he do this yet again, right? Why does he need to remind him? Why why does he continue to reiterate his promises? He gave them in 12. He reminded in 13. He did them again in 15. Now he's reminding them again in chapter 17. Why does he keep reiterating his promises? I think the best reason is because we tend to forget. We tend to forget. And it had been 13 years since the Lord had appeared to Abram or spoken to him. And so God graciously reminds him of his covenant promises. Now, there's going to be some obvious similarities between this listing of God's covenant promises in chapter 17 and what we've seen prior. There's going to be some very obvious similarities. But there's also going to be a few distinctions that will be noteworthy. So um, just listen as I read verses 4 through 8. So Abram fell on his face, and then God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So as with the original promise in chapter 12, and as God has been reiterating it, um, so we have them here in chapter 17. The, The basic content and form of the promises is very similar. It's a threefold promise. I will give you offspring. I will multiply you greatly and give you the land, and through you, through this expansion of your offspring, you will be a blessing to the nation. So it's the same basic content and form as we've seen along the way that God's reminding him of now. But there are some notable differences or distinctives to how God fleshes out the promises in this chapter that we haven't seen heretofore. So there's five distinctives to these promises Um, that kind of set them apart. The first is, whereas before God promised to make Abram into a great nation, and what was that nation? That nation was going to be Israel. God had promised, I'm going to make you into a great nation, chapter 12. Now, he says, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. And and so this promise of offspring is there, but it's, it's multiplied. It's given greater prominence now. Secondly, this in turn, consequently, leads the Lord to change Abram's name. 
His name is changed from Abram, which means father of many, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So now he's got a new name. So now I don't have to worry about going back, back and forth between them. I can just say Abraham. But I will probably say Abram just because we've been saying that for so long. So uh, the third distinctive here is that the Lord speaks here of his covenant promises in all three tenses, in a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Now the majority of this is future tense. 17 times God says, I will do this, I will make this, I will give this to you, and you're the sentence after you, and you will do this. So most of it is future tense, but there's also a couple of instances of the present tense here. He says, I am God Almighty. And in verse 3, he says, my covenant is with you. Isn't that interesting? He says, I'm going to make my covenant with you. And in verse 3, he says, my covenant is with you, which, which makes sense because he's, he already cut the covenant in chapter 15. This is not a new covenant. This is, this is not a different covenant. This is a ratification of the covenant that was cut in chapter 15. But what's noteworthy here also is, the, is that one past tense in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And, and it's in the past tense there of verse 5 that's, that's noteworthy. God, God speaks to Abram as being the father of a multitude of nations. How many kids does he have? He has one. He has Ishmael. The, the, the quote-unquote illegitimate child of he, he and Hagar, the Egyptian maid. And yet God says here, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's in the, past, in, in the, in the present tense here. The, it's in the past tense. It's, it's, it's happened already as if it's already happened. And, and with God, the reality is it has already happened because God said it. And once God said it, that's it, right? Nothing else needs to be done. This is, this is the God who spoke creation into existence. He said it, and, and, and there was creation. And so God said, I'm going to make you the father of multitude of nations. And then in verse 5, he says, I have made you the father of multitude of nations. Once he said it, it's as if it's already there. It's still yet to be fulfilled in the future, but in God's economy, it's as if it's already happened because it is that sure. And so it is with all of God's promises, church. All of the promises that we're waiting on, that we're, that we're putting our hope in, that he will give us a home, that he will return to take us there, that he will ultimately one day save us, not just from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but ultimately one day from the very presence of sin. Church, these, these promises have already happened in God's economy. We're just waiting for that. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Fourth distinctive here is that in this laying out of God's covenant promises, the first time we see the mention of kings coming from Abram. We haven't seen this up to this point. It's just been about nations and offspring, but now he's talking about kings are coming from you. This part of the covenant is going to be developed later in God's covenant with David. But this is the first time. This is, the, this is new here in this covenant promise with Abraham. That kings are going to come from you. And of course, this points forward to Jesus, and the, who is the king of kings, who comes from Abraham's seed. And then the fifth and final distinctive here is he says here three different times that this is an everlasting covenant. Twice he says this, this, this covenant is everlasting, and once he, he talks about the land being an everlasting possession. So what does that mean? What does everlasting mean? Well, it, it means eternal, right? Isn't that just the regular understanding of the word? It means forever. It means eternal. Well, usually, Proverbs 10, or excuse me, Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Same word there. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the Lord is king eternally and without end? Absolutely it does. It's exactly what it means. Another one, Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Does that mean that his steadfast love endures eternally and without end? Absolutely it does. That's exactly what it means. But... There are times when this very same word 
clearly doesn't mean eternally and without end. Instead, it means forever until it's finished. Forever until it's done. Or forever until God says otherwise. Let me give you a couple of examples. One from Deuteronomy 15, verse 17. God is giving directions to Moses about what to do when your servant in the year of Jubilee, in the seventh year, says, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go enjoy freedom. I don't want to stay and serve you for the rest of my life. God is giving Moses directions. What do you do then? What do you do in that situation? He tells them, then you shall take an awl, A-W-L, and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. Now, does that mean that that slave is that person's slave eternally and without end? Well, no, obviously not. It means that he is their slave until they die, right? That slavery, that arrangement ends at the death of that slave. Another example from Leviticus 16, verse 34. There, God is going through all these ceremonial laws and ceremonial feasts and festivals. And in this passage, he's talking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He's instituting that as a festival. And he says, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, does this mean that the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, should be observed forever by us? That, that we should be celebrating Yom Kippur today? Well, no, of course it doesn't. Well, why not? Well, because the sacrificial system was set, as, set aside when Jesus became our sacrificial lamb. He fulfilled all the sacrifices. He fulfilled all of that, and so we no longer have any need for those sacrifices and the observance of Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement in that way. So it was forever until God fulfilled it, until God changed it. So the Abrahamic covenant is forever until God says it's not. And he did in his son Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew 15, or excuse me, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 through 18. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all, until all is accomplished. Church, it's been accomplished. It's, it's been fulfilled. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. He didn't abrogate the law. He accomplished the law. And now that it's been fulfilled, it's no longer in force, which is why we don't offer sacrifices like they used to. So the Abrahamic covenant is forever until God changes it or says it's not, and he has in his son, Jesus Christ. So he's reminding Abraham here of these covenant promises. And these reminders in chapter 17 are going to be a watershed moment in Abraham's life as God continues to teach him, and Abraham learns how to trust God, that God is almighty, that he is all-powerful, and he can do anything even when the odds are stacked against you, even when it seems impossible. And then we move into the second part of our text this morning, which is verses 9 through 14, where God gives Abraham a sign of this covenant. So listen as I read verses 9 through 14. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my command." You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring... Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my commandment. There's a lot here, and we may not have time to unpack it all. But just as we said earlier that there were three obligations for Abraham in this covenant, two of them we covered. Walk before me, walk before the face of God and be blameless. Now there's a third. 
and that is to be circumcised, that all the males, every male of your household shall be circumcised. Now, the big question here is why does God require this as a part of the covenant with Abraham? Why does he, why does he do this? And scholars have debated about this. Some scholars say that there was a health reason, that there was a hygiene reason for this, that as God was protecting his people, his chosen people, Israel, through whom he would bring his son, that he was protecting them health-wise and all of this. And that may be part of the case. That, that may be. I don't, we don't know. But that would be reading into the text. The only reason that we're given in the text is that circumcision is a sign. It's a sign of this covenant with God. Verse 11 says, it, speaking of the circumcision, shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, God had given other signs. Remember back in Genesis chapter 6, God made a covenant with Noah and gave him a sign. That sign was a rainbow. And that rainbow was a reminder that God was promising that he would never again destroy the earth through flood. Later, in the Exodus, the blood of the Passover lamb was painted on the doorposts of the Israelites. Why? So that it would be a sign to mark out the people of God so that they would be saved from that final plague. In the same way, circumcision was a means by which the Israelites would be marked out by God as his chosen people. It was a physical way of God identifying his people and it included every male in the household and every male in the household of Abraham's descendants. Now, as we said earlier, Jesus has fulfilled this covenant, and so we don't circumcise anymore. We don't have time to go to Acts chapter 15, where we have the Jerusalem Council. We had a members meeting on Sunday. We thought that was interesting. The first members meeting of the church in Jerusalem was very interesting. What was going on? Well, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the church at Antioch, and they were preaching the gospel, not just to Jews, but they were preaching the gospel to Gentiles. They were preaching the gospel in these Gentile lands and Gentile cities. And lo and behold, what had happened to the Jewish disciples in Jerusalem at Pentecost began to happen among the Gentiles. They began coming to faith. God gave them new birth, and they received the Holy Spirit, and it was amazing. Great things were happening. But there was a disagreement among the believers. And the disagreement was, well, how are these Gentiles going to, going to become, um, get into this, this new faith? They couldn't even call it Christianity. They didn't know what to call it. It was, the, it was followers of the way. How could, how could these Gentiles come into this very Jewish-feeling religion? Well, how do they do that? And some were saying in Jerusalem, some, some of the leaders were saying, well, they got to become Jews. They had to become Jews first. And how do you become a Jew? Well, one of the ways you become a Jew, Genesis 17, is you get circumcised. And so they were saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't become a Christian. You can't follow Jesus. You can't become a follower of Christ. So they had the Jerusalem Council. They had their members meeting. They worked it out. And ultimately, by God's grace, they arrived at the right answer. And they said, actually, you don't have to do this. It is by grace. It is not by works. It's not this circumcision that is a work. There is a new covenant. Jesus says, there's a new covenant in my blood. And so he said, you don't have to do this. Just just." Come to faith in Jesus Christ and do these other things that, that are going to help you not offend the, the, the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, but you don't have to be circumcised. So we don't get circumcised today because of religious reasons. There may be health and hygienic reasons, but it's not for spiritual or religious reasons as it was in Abram's day. So that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that we don't do that today as a result of religious reasons. Jesus has fulfilled that covenant. So we don't have circumcision as a way of marking out the people of God. But do we have a way that the people of God today are marked out as the people of God? Do we have a way? Do we have a sign for those who are in the new covenant? And we do. It's baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant just as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Listen to how Paul relates the two in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Just listen to this. Paul says, In him, that's in Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, he's, he's talking there not about physical circumcision, but a, but a circumcision of the heart. And we don't have time to get into that there, but it's, it's 
symbolically referring to the physical um, circumcision. But then he goes right on to the very next, next verse. After talking about circumcision, he says this in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this correlation between circumcision and baptism. Just as circumcision marked out God's chosen people in the old covenant, so baptism marks out God's chosen people in the new covenant. This is why we're told in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. What do we do with them? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Go and share the gospel with those who are far from God. And, and when God grants them faith and repentance and they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you are to baptize them. Mark them out as the people of God. Put that mark, that sign of the new covenant on them so that they can be marked out as my chosen people. They're mine. They're mine now. And we're his. He's adopted us into his family. That's all wrapped up in the idea of baptism. And just as with circumcision, baptism comes after the expression of faith, which is why we practice believer's baptism, because baptism symbolizes the new birth, right, where we're washed of our sin. It symbolizes the new birth that that accompanies faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as our only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Paul taught about this in Romans chapter 4. If you remember from our study of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about how sinners like us can be justified, made righteous to stand before a holy God. And and his point there is that we can only be be made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ when his blamelessness, his without blemishness, as we talked about earlier, is credited to us. And so we're made righteous by faith in him. But then in chapter 4, Paul puts forth Abraham as an example of that. He says, guys, look at Abraham. Even Abraham was only justified by faith. We saw that in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham was not justified by works, Paul says. And one of those works he's not justified by is circumcision. He mentions that. Listen to uh, verses 9 through 12 of Romans 4. Paul says, in this blessing, talking about the blessing of justification... In this blessing then, is this blessing, he asks, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we're told by Paul in Galatians that what Abraham believed and had faith in was the gospel. Paul told us that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So what, God, what Abraham put his faith in was the gospel, the promise of a Messiah that would come and would be the, the fulfillment of that promise, that, that, that curse on the serpent. There, there is coming one from the seed of the woman who will crush your head. And, and, and so uh, this was fulfilled. And he, he says um, those who put their faith in that are given the righteousness of Christ. And so, um, then verse 10 of Romans 4, how then was it counted to him? So how did that happen? How was Abraham counted as righteous? When did it happen? Paul asks, was it before or after he had been circumcised? He answers the question, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So, Abraham was justified by faith, not by his circumcision. He was justified by faith in chapter 15, and he wasn't circumcised. He wasn't circumcised until 15 to 20 years later in chapter 17, and then he was given the sign that he had that faith through which he was made righteous and justified. And we say the same thing about baptism, right? Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't justify you. It doesn't make you righteous, Like Abraham, we are justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. Then we are baptized, demonstrating to God and to us and to the church and to the watching world that we are his. We receive that sign of the new covenant where we are marked out as the people of God through baptism. Paul continues in Romans 4, the rest of verse 11, and then on into 12. The purpose 
The purpose of, of, of God doing this with Abraham, bringing him to faith and then giving him the sign afterwards, the purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's us. So that righteousness would be counted to them, that is us, as well. And, verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, physically, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, Abraham is the father of those who are not circumcised, but have the faith of Abraham. And he is the father of those who are circumcised and have the faith of Abraham. But he is not the father of those who are circumcised but don't have the faith of Abraham. That's important. That's very key. Now, this is going to beg the question. I'm going to go ahead and handle this. Um, Since God told Abram to circumcise not just himself, not just his 13-year-old son Ishmael, and, and not just the adult males of his household, he also said all the babies right? If they're eight days old, they are to be circumcised. They're to participate in this as in, in well. So in other words, since babies receive the sign of the old covenant, should not then babies also receive the sign of the new covenant baptism? That's a good question. And we can't just use the argument here that faith must precede baptism. Now that's a good and right and true argument, but That's an insufficient argument for what we see here in Genesis chapter 17 with respect to circumcision. Because even though Abraham expressed faith back in chapter 17, it wasn't circumcised until chapter 17. Um, He he expressed faith in 15 and he was circumcised in, in chapter 17. The same can't be said of babies, right? They didn't express faith. They can't express faith. They, they, they don't have the ability to cognitively um, even understand the gospel, much less respond to it in genuine faith and rep- repentance. And yet, clearly, babies were given the sign of the old covenant, circumcision. And so shouldn't we give babies the sign of the new covenant today and start baptizing babies? The quick answer is no, right? So don't have a heart attack. Um, we don't baptize babies, but why not? How, how do we... How do we answer this particular objection of uh, ob- objection to credo baptism? Credo baptism means believers' baptism. Credo is Latin for for um, believe, uh, whereas those who affirm baptism of babies and infants are pedo baptist. Pedo is Latin for um, children or child or infant or baby. So, how do we answer this particular objection? The main issue that we need to consider when we're talking about marking out the people of God, whether it's by circumcision in the Old old Covenant or whether it's baptism in the New Covenant, the main thing that that we need to consider here is who are the people of God in both of those settings. So who are God's chosen people in the Old Covenant and who are God's chosen people in the New Covenant? Who are they and what are they comprised of? What's in that? God's chosen people in the Old Covenant are they're the Israelites, right? They're the Hebrews, the physical descendants of Abraham. This is um, ethnic, physical, natural, national Israel. And those who are part of that were designated by the sign of the covenant, circumcision, all of them. But not all the Israelites were like Abraham. Not all of them believed. Not all of them trusted in the promised Messiah who would come and crush the head of Satan and defeat sin and death for all his people. Not all were like that. Paul put it this way back in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And when we went through Romans, you recall, we talked about, Paul was saying, not all Israel is Israel. So there's two Israels. There's an ethnic ethnic um, national physical Israel and there is a true spiritual Israel so he says not not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring but here he quotes from the passage we'll look at next week through Isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not the children of the flesh Paul says who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring So there were these two Israels, national, physical, ethnic Israel, and true spiritual Israel, an Israel of faith. And Genesis 
chapter 17, tells us that they both received the sign of the Old Covenant. They, they both were uh, circumcised because they were part of the larger Israel, even though not all of them were part of the remnant of faith. And so the question for us is, to, to which of these two Israels does the church today correspond? National ethnic Israel or true spiritual Israel? Because God's chosen people in the new covenant is the church. And that's not referring to a continuation of ethnic physical Israel. It's referring to a continuation of true spiritual Israel, a continuation of the remnant of faith. The church today, um, we hope and we pray and we, we order membership processes towards this, is comprised only of those who are of faith. If we're convinced somebody's not of faith, then they're not, then they're not in the church. That's the biblical New Testament understanding of the church, that everyone in the church is those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just like the remnant of faith in the Old Covenant, who are part of that remnant of faith within the larger national ethnic Israel. So the people of God in the Old Testament were mixed. Some believed the Messiah, some didn't. Some had faith, some didn't. But the people of God in the New Testament are homogenous in, that, in the sense that they all have faith in Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, all of Israel received the sign of the Old Covenant. The remnant and the non-remnant. And likewise, all of the church, which is the people of God in the New Covenant, all of the church should receive the sign of the new covenant, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But since the church is comprised of only those who have faith in Jesus Christ, baptism should, only, should be limited to only those who give evidence of a credible profession of that faith. Babies can't, and so babies aren't. So that's our answer. You can take that for what it's worth. One final consideration about circumcision here. We mentioned this back when we looked at the Colossians 2 passage. It seemed to refer, refer to a different kind of circumcision than just physical. That there was a deeper meaning for circumcision. He said in verse 11 of Colossians 2, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul put it this way in, earlier in the book of Romans. Romans 2 verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And lest we just think that Paul was just kind of totally changing things around on what circumcision meant, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then Jeremiah the prophet speaks on behalf of God in Jeremiah 4.4 4 and says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. The circumcision of our heart is when God arrests our soul and arrests our life and he brings to us this new birth. He brings to us the spirit of God. He removes from us this hardness of heart and he gives us a heart of flesh that is, that is soft to the things of God, open to the things of God. He circumcises the hardness of our heart and brings us to faith and repentance. And you might be here this morning and you've never professed faith in Christ. Maybe you're investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe you're, maybe you're trying to clean things up a little bit. Listen, that is a dead end street. The Bible is very, very clear that the only way we can be reconciled to God is through faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so it is my prayer, our prayer who are believers in this room, it is our prayer for you that God would in this moment circumcise your heart that he would remove that, the foreskin of your heart, remove the hardness of that, and give you a heart of flesh that is soft to the things of God, and that he might grant you faith and repentance, perhaps even now, to believe on Christ and be saved. And the rest of us, let us consider and be reminded where we are in redemptive history. 
that man has sinned and that what God is doing and he is, he is working out his plan to redeem sinners like us back to himself. So all this talk about covenant, it points to the cross. It points to Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed says, this is my covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Let us continue to place faith in him and trust him to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, we ask, Father, that you would attend the reading and preaching of your word with, with, uh, with understanding. We want to be different. Lord, we pray that you, would, that you would give us the kind of overwhelming sense of awe that you are with us. God, would you remind us that each day, even today, we walk before you. May that be encouraging and may that keep us accountable to you to walk with integrity of heart, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as we learned this weekend. And God, we, we thank you so much for your plan. It is perfect. It is awesome. Your plan to redeem sinners like us back to you. We thank you for that and we can't wait to see you again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.